Good morning, Chapel Hill. May I just say, it is good to see your faces out there. I can't. I don't recall the time I had more fun than the 10 minutes this early Friday uh, last that I came down here and took down every single mask sign that was posted around the church. So it was a personal delight for me. It is great to see you. It is great to hear you. And I know that you are going to shout words of acclamation as I preach that I'll be able to hear better uh, because your masks are not on. Good. Welcome to you to worship today. And what a treat it was, wasn't it, to hear our quartet, our brass quartet. What a wonderful gift that was to us. It was terrific. Well, a couple of weeks ago, movie star and comedian Adam Sandler walked into a Long Island IHOP with his daughter, and they were going to get some uh, breakfast. The hostess, however, did not recognize the comedian behind his mask and told him that there was going to be a 30-minute wait. And then Adam Sandler did something shocking. He politely left the restaurant. He, he didn't pull down his mask in rage. He didn't shout, don't you know who I am? Because he did not want to wait 30 minutes for his pancakes. He, like an adult, left the restaurant. And it says something about our culture that that video and story has gone viral. Who today can imagine a celebrity that does not cash in on his fame? We, we, we seem to be shocked that a, that a star wouldn't insist on being moved to the front of the line. And Adam's uh, response to the brouhaha was even classier. He, he tweeted out, for the record, I only left IHOP because the nice woman told me the all-you-can-eat deal didn't apply to milkshakes. And in response, IHOP declared last Monday as all-you-can-drink milkshake day at every Long Island venue. Adam Sandler's stock went way up with me, as I think it did with so many people in this country. He offered an unintentional lesson in humility in this celebrity-obsessed culture of ours. And even more importantly... What kind of example did he just offer to his daughter, right? Who watched her famous daddy behave like a grown-up instead of throwing a tantrum. I think the Apostle Paul would have been very pleased with that response. Judging especially from his letter to his sweetheart church, the Philippians. I want to review for a moment where we are in this book. Remember, Paul is sitting in a, a Roman prison awaiting trial and perhaps even his own execution. He might be released, he might be executed, he is not sure. But either way, Paul says it is a win-win situation. Remember that? To live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. If he lives, he, he gets to do more work for the kingdom of Jesus. And if he dies, he gets to go be with Jesus forever. So it is the ultimate win-win. So since the Philippian Christians are not sure whether they will ever even see their beloved apostle again, what are they supposed to do? How are they supposed to live in that uncertainty? Well, Paul's first response is, 
I want you to live like good citizens of the kingdom of Jesus. I'll show you what I mean. We pick it up in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 and following. Here's what Paul says. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not at all frightened by anything by your opponents. And then we're going to drop down to verse, chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. That opening phrase of Paul's, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, it is actually better translated, literally, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the actual language in the Greek. And Paul is doing this on purpose. I want to remind you that Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a little piece of Latin culture that was plunked down a thousand miles away from the Roman capital. It was filled with retired Roman soldiers who had been granted that greatest of all perks in that day. They had been granted Roman citizenship. To be a Roman citizen in Philippi, it was a big deal. It was a big honor, and it carried with it a huge responsibility to protect the interests of Rome and, and, as, as this, and its far-flung outpost in this empire. And so Paul is playing off of that idea when he talks to the Philippians by saying, I want you to be good citizens, not of Rome, not even of Philippi. He says, I want you to be good citizens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, whether I come to you or not, and see, he's still uncertain whether he's going to come to them or not. Whether I come to you or not, I want you to stand firm in one spirit and be united in one mind. This is Paul's call to Christian unity. They were just a tiny little minority group in a larger culture. And Paul is saying, listen, the only way that you're going to survive and thrive is to stick together. Pretty good words for us today in our culture, I would say. He continues with the same idea in chapter 2. He says, if there is any, and then he goes on and provides a long list of the qualities of what it means to be a citizen of the gospel. They encourage one another, he says. They comfort one another. They share in partnership in ministry. They have a deep affection for one another. That's my personal favorite, by the way. The literal Greek word there for deep affection is the word splogsnois. Would you say that with me, please? Splogsnois. It's a wonderful, awful-sounding word, and it sounds just like it means. It means, literally, bowels. Bowels. So uh, we, uh, we would say, I love you with all of my heart. The Greek would say, I love you with all my bowels. Isn't that romantic? Share that with your wife tonight, guys. Anyhow, Paul is saying that 
all of these qualities, these qualities of encouragement and comfort and partnership and affection, he says these are examples of what it means to be good Christian citizens. And he said, and when you live in this way, it's going to result in unity. He says you're going to be of the same mind, you're going to have the same love, you're going to be in full accord and of one mind. The sure sign of Christian citizenship is unity. Now, where did Paul get that idea that we Christians ought to be one? Well, he got it from Jesus. Do you remember in John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer for the church? He prays that his disciples would be one. In fact, he goes on to say that they would be perfectly one. In fact, he goes on to say that they would be one just as you, Father, and I are one. That's the unity he wants us to demonstrate. And he said, and by that unity, the world is going to know that you are my disciples. And they're going to know that Jesus has been sent as the Son sent from God. Now, so what that means is you and you and you and you and you and you and every one of you and I, we are one. We ought to be united in thought, united in heart, united in mission, united in purpose, standing together side by side in our witness for the Lord Jesus in a very antagonistic world. That was Jesus' prayer for us. That was Paul's longing for the Philippians. Unity, oneness. Next year, I will celebrate 40 years of ordination as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may I just say, I'm still waiting for that prayer to be answered. The perfect, indivisible unity of God's people. I'm still waiting. I think that Chapel Hill is better than most, honestly. It's one of the reasons I call you my, my sweetheart church, because I think we're better than most. Because we do not have, thank God, the kind of petty divisions that many of you lived through. I see your heads nodding up and down. You seasoned Christian war horses, you, you know what you can live through. And so we don't have a lot of those petty divisions around here. But I still have my emails, and I still have appointments on my calendar that prove that it's still a challenge. People who aren't happy with where the church is going, or people who are angry that we don't do things the way that we used to, or that we're not doing the way things that the way they think it ought to be done. I actually keep a file of those nasty grams. All those nasty letters and all of those emails, I tuck them away. And I'm not sure why I do that, actually. Maybe it's to keep me humble. Maybe it's because I'm a slightly uh, masochistic. But those letters certainly remind me that we are not yet living in the unified way that is appropriate to the citizenship of the kingdom of God. So how do we do it? If we're not yet there, how do we do it? And you might respond, well, we love that we love one another. That's what Jesus said. By your love, you will show that you are my disciples. And that is certainly true enough. But what does that mean? What does that kind of love look like? 
Remember, biblical love is not a feeling. It is not an emotion. Jesus wasn't saying because you have warm, fuzzy feelings for one another, then the world will know that you are my disciples. Biblical love is action. It is decision. It is a verb. It is not a noun. So how do we love one another in this way? How do we put Christ's love into action? I think Paul sums it up in his, I, I, I think this is actually a definition of Christian love in what we just read. Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4 might be a wonderful definition of Christian love. Listen to it. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I wonder, I I think that this might be a great definition of Christian agape love. Selflessness. Less of selfness. Our primary driving, controlling, wickedly powerful human instinct is self-interest. My first thought, sometimes even with the person that I most love in this world, my sweet wife, is, is often self. What do I want to watch? What do I want to eat? Where do I want to go? Where would I like to vacation? What shall we do this evening? What do I want to do this evening? I love my wife about as much as any man can love his wife. And I still have to beat back my self-interest in our relationship because that instinct is so damnably strong. And if that is so toward my beloved, how much more is it so toward every other person in my life? My instinct tends to be self, self-interest, self-protection, self-promotion, self-centeredness, self-determination, self-satisfaction, self-absorption, self-confidence, self-consciousness, self-indulgence, self-obsession, self-reliance, self-satisfaction, and all of the rest of the other 427 examples of the words that begin with the prefix self. 427 words. That ought to tell us something about our human default setting. We have 427 ways of describing my obsession with me. Just think about the newest entry into our self-lexicon, the selfie. We, we used to take pictures of others, right? Or we would ask someone to take a picture of us. Now we are primarily interested in taking selfies with others as the background in our picture. And my phone now even makes it easier. I have an amazing phone. All I have to do is hold it up and say, smile. And it will take its latest unflattering up-the-nose hair shot that I can add to my endless collection of selfies. That's the funny side of selfies, but there's a tragic side. And that that is that there are entire websites that are devoted to selfies that have been taken just before a person died because they were doing something stupid that they wanted to capture in their selfie. They call this phenomenon death 
by selfie. It's a real thing. De look it up. Death by selfie. And that very phrase, I think, is a poignant metaphor for the greatest of all battles that every human fights for all of our lives. And that is our tragic and self-destructive focus on moi, on me. Paul encourages the Philippians to do battle with that instinct. To focus not on the self, but on the other. And the encouraging thing is he does it in a way that is doable. It seems attainable. It seems reasonable. It seems possible. For instance, he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Other translations say, consider others more important than yourself. Notice he doesn't say others are more important than you. He says, treat others as if they are. Don't view yourself as the big shot. Treat others as if they are the big shot. Like their thoughts, their preferences, their ideas, their contributions are the most important thing. Like not forcing yourself to the front of the line at IHOP, for example. Carl Logic was a pillar of Chapel Hill Church when I arrived back in 1987. And I remember walking into church one night when it was closed and dark and finding Carl and his wife Mary shampooing the carpets with a carpet machine that they had rented. What I didn't know at the time was that Carl Logic could have bought that carpet rental equipment company many times over. Carl was the guy who invented the jetway. You know, the tube that every one of us walks in through to get to an airplane every time we fly off somewhere. Carl was a big deal. And Carl had made some big money. But you'd never know it on that night when he, alone with his wife, was shampooing our church carpets with a rented machine. Carl really did count others as more important than himself. The great thing about this approach is it is not demeaning to you. You're not saying, I am unimportant, I am a worm, I'm worthless, I don't deserve nice things, I don't deserve to be listened to. No, what you are doing is choosing to build up the person that you are with, to bless them by behaving in a way that says, I think you matter, I think your ideas matter. I think your thoughts matter. I think your words matter. I was talking with one of my newer friends last week as we walked together, and I told him, you are a very difficult person to converse with because you are so good at asking questions and being interested in my answers that it's never easy to get around to hearing your story. My friend is really good at counting others as more significant than himself. Paul offers one other reasonable, attainable, possible, doable idea in this journey towards being good citizens. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Again, he doesn't say, don't look out for any of your own interests. Don't care for yourself and for your loved ones. That would be silly and stupid and, frankly, against a lot of other biblical teaching on what it means to be a responsible adult. 
But rather, he says, also look to the interests of others. If you can reach a point where we at least consider their interests along with your own, that would be spectacular progress for humanity. If we could practice this, if we could treat others as being bigger big shots than we are, if we could look out for the interests of others as well as our own, what difference might that make in our families, in our church, in our community? If we could be on constant guard against self-interest, it, it would change everything about our broken culture. But here's the deal. This will never happen through your grit. This will never happen because of your determination to be less self-absorbed. It's not possible because chronic self-interest is actually just another definition for sin. That is our core human state. It's the very thing from which we need to be saved, this toxic focus on ourselves. And the good news is this. We have a Savior who by His very life demonstrated what it means to consider others more important than Himself, whose very mission to this earth was to look out for the interests of others. The, these first few verses in Philippians chapter 2, they are actually an introduction to an ancient Christ hymn, a, a song that was sung by the earliest Christians uh, in worship of the Lord Jesus, which we're going to dive into more next week. And this hymn, as you will see, celebrates how Jesus emptied himself, how he gave himself away, how he came to earth not as a king but as a slave, and how he humbled himself completely and ultimately humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a despised and cursed cross. It is the example of the Lord Jesus that inspires us to live selflessly. And it is only the Spirit of Christ living within us that makes it possible for us to do so. So perhaps we could start right here by listening to the prompting of the Spirit in our own hearts this morning. Where is one place that I know that I am not looking out for the interest of others? What am I, where is one place that I'm considering myself more important than someone else? What self-interest is the Holy Spirit calling to your own attention of which you might repent why don't we close this message by just asking our Holy Spirit to make us more like our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we confess our self-interest. We confess our self-absorption. We confess that our instinct almost all of the time is to ask what do I think about this? How do I like this? How does it serve me? How does it make me feel? And Lord, when we look at the gift of yourself, how you emptied yourself and came to this earth in the form not of a king, not of a conqueror, but as a servant, we are convicted of our absorption with our own interests. Please forgive, it. forgive us for that. And even now, Lord, as we are thinking, you know, that relationship, I'm, 
I'm pretty selfish about it. Or that, that focus, that direction, that is pretty much all about me and my interests. Whatever, Lord, we are being prompted to do, perhaps it's in regard to that person that's sitting right next to us right now. Our beloved, the one that we love most in the world, and yet we're finding ourselves leaning towards our preference as opposed to deferring to theirs. Forgive us for that, Lord. Make us more like Jesus. Make us more humble. And in doing this, Lord, would you unite your church even further? Would you make us one that the world might know that we are yours? For we ask this in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Our worship services are Sundays at 8.30, 10 o'clock, and 11.30 a.m. We'd love to meet you. To learn more about Chapel Hill and find out about upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.